Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast episode number 106. As dedicated dancers, we all share a common goal to level up our dancing over time. This goal inspires us to take weekly classes, invest in private lessons, and attend workshops and festivals. And to make sure we don't forget what we learned and we can go back and practice, we record tons and tons of videos. How many videos do you have saved on your phone right now? How often have you reviewed them and extracted the golden nuggets that you learned from those classes? How often do you record yourself during a solo practice session or with a partner? If these questions are making you feel seen right now, I have the solution for you to organize your dance journey. The Dancer's Training Journal 1.0, a Notion template to help you organize your dance videos and more. Notion is a cool and easy to use productivity app, and I've created a template for you that does the heavy lifting for you to have a system in place to organize all of your videos from your practices, private lessons, festivals, and more. To learn more about how to untap your dance potential with focus, accountability, and consistency with this dope resource, go to neokizomba.com slash templates. Again, neokizomba.com slash templates. Welcome to the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast, the podcast dedicated to inspiring dancers worldwide whose hearts have been touched by music and dance. The universal language of dance and music is spoken by many of us throughout the world. We want to motivate the dancer in you by sharing stories, insights, and ideas to enhance your journey. Join us now with your host, Charles Ogar. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast, where we're coming at you with some more intellectual dance conversation in the world of partner dance. And yeah, we're going to keep the weekly episodes going, seeing a lot more people starting to interact with the podcast and share my podcast and things of that nature. If you guys watch the podcast or listen to the podcast, I should say through the site, I recently added some share functionality on the podcast page on my website where it makes it a little bit easier to share. And I see that some people are starting to utilize that. So that's pretty cool. From my podcast statistics, I do see that a lot of you listen through Spotify. So that's also pretty cool. Like always, if you guys enjoyed the episode, feel free to like take a screenshot of you listening to the podcast and tag us in your Instagram stories. I really like seeing those kind of things and just getting to know more of the community out there around dance and partner dancing and things of that nature and kind of busting out of the bubble of just being in one little dance genre niche, if you will. But um, this week's guest is I really, I guess we've we've had a really interesting getting to know one another and where our paths actually crossed briefly. They actually stayed in my house, but it was brief because <laughs> I wasn't there and Correct. we didn't get a chance to nerd out. And then yep. like freaking, I don't know, a year or two later, our paths crossed again. Um, and then we just had this one call and it was just like, like you, you use this term, I forgot what it's called, but like we're of the same crass or- Carass. Carass, yeah, I had to look that up. 
and that was pretty cool. And I'm like, yes, we need to do a podcast together. So I'm I'm curious, or it's just interesting to know that like we were so close to like nerding out on these things because you're actually staying at my place, but it didn't happen for whatever reason. And now it has happened. So yeah, it's really cool to have you here on the show. Uh, you guys are definitely going to be in for a treat. Uh, hearing from my, I guess now good friend Miss Ruby Rambo. Did I pronounce that correctly? That's correct. <laughs> nice. How are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm ready to do this. This has been such a, a technical challenge. I'm ready to mm-hmm. dive into all the topics that we're actually stoked about. For sure. This so to provide some context to the listeners, uh, Ruby and I were scheduled to do this last weekend, but the technical gods were not in our favor. And we just spent about 45 minutes trying to get all the technical stuff going for this to go. So it looks pretty stable um, and things of that nature. But yeah, content creation is is not easy. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that we're able to kind of get that out of the way. So now we can give our brain power to the, the dance stuff. So Yes, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast, especially after our conversation that we had before. And this podcast is probably going to go off on a lot of different tangents, touching on different things. And that's totally okay. But um, I guess we can start off with like how you how are you navigating the the pandemic as a dancer and, and things of that nature, since that's kind of like at the forefront of everybody's, I guess, awareness right now, you know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of us are hitting anniversaries for some people are kind of calling this week like the anniversary of lockdown mm-hmm. um, side note I hate the word lockdown mm. that could be a separate conversation we're not locked down like we're not locked down <laughs> <laughs> like, pe- like people were locked down in, in Italy for a while people mm-hmm. were locked down in France for a while American mm-hmm. concept of lack of freedom is a friggin joke like oh I'm yeah. wearing a mask I'm locked down like yeah for sure All right, there's just, no military army outside your door yeah. that will yeah. like shoot you or something like that you know we're just we're in quarantine we're being careful <laughs> you know we're po- we're potting up whatever but whatever people want to say lockdown so yeah it's been an anniversary I just this morning taught my first in-person live with other humans in the room core class at the gym that I work at. And the last class that I taught was last year on March 12th. So it has literally been a year. And um, it was kind of just like a mental trip when I realized that this week. Mm -hmm. It's also very interesting because actually today is March the 13th, which is today, literally a year ago is when I had my second open heart surgery. Like, I remember on this seeing day. that news. So yeah, it's it's crazy. Like I was going through my Facebook memories, and there's a Facebook live video of me post surgery, like talking to people, yeah. like, "Hey, I'm okay," and I had all the fucking tubes and IV and all that kind of stuff, you know. So it's interesting to like, hey, it's been a year for like the pandemic, but then hey, it's also been a year for your second heart surgery, and you're still here. So. There's a sense of, of of gratitude that comes along. And then there's also, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting thing. I was hoping to be able to like get a, a YouTube video ready in time to kind of like encapsulate my thoughts of that experience like a year later. I still yeah. want to do it. I think I should do it. Do it. Um, do it. But it's going to take some, some time to, I guess, organize my thoughts. But yeah, this, I think the last fusion event was my last dance event. The Dallas uh, fusion reaction with Vanessa in Dallas happened. 
right, right before because it was like March 7th, 8th or something like that. So I did right. that dance event and that was going to turn right back around and, and jump into to heart surgery, which was on Friday the 13th last year um, because today is the um, today's Saturday. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason that we met was that we were supposed to do a like a teacher's nerd out at your house mm-hmm. last year. I do remember that. That that's how that's how your name came up from Vanessa. And mm-hmm. we ended up we had some people back out and people were like, you know what, let's reschedule when more people that we want to be there can make it. And then mm-hmm. I was like, well, I'm still driving around the South mm. and Vanessa was hooking up with, you know, cr- making workshops happen um, all over Texas. Mm-hmm. And so I just ended up being like, hey, uh, I'm going to be in Austin for two weeks. Can I stay at your place? Mm-hmm. You guys <laughs> taught at my place, right? Yep. Yep. So, and yeah, I, I actually, I got really sick at the, the day before that workshop. I mm. mean, I could have had coronavirus Mm. technically technically it was in the state at that time i've seen some posts about it since then it was definitely in the states like november december for sure yeah it was there was a there was a case at uh there was a case at a city a college city in texas Mm. that that got reported but we had the workshop at your place and I think I only danced with Vanessa and I only danced with a couple people. And normally I'm not too freaked out about sharing germs with people, but I was, Mm. I felt so bad that I didn't really want to touch people or dance with them. Mm. So I'm hoping that if whatever I had, I didn't pass it on to anybody. But after I left your house, I was so sick. It took me three days to drive to California Mm. and I just took a hot bath every night in a cheap hotel and sweat and shivered mm. and sweat and shivered and coughed and coughed and coughed and i got to california and i was like on the i was like on the other side of it it was intense yeah it's interesting a lot of people have been sharing stories about that about like a weird illness that they had before all of that but i feel like what happened was kind of freaking out because like people were like tracking the spread of it but like i feel like we we're just becoming aware of it yeah like it's been here for a while yeah. and we just had the testing yeah. to be able to actually identify what it was you know so it's yeah. crazy that it, it spread that fast because it was crazy because first it was like just the major cities but then you just saw it like spread like all in between the big yeah. cities and all that kind of stuff it's like how is it spreading so fast and of course it can't spread it was a little bit scary because you think that it's spreading in real time yeah. Like in like a couple of weeks, it's, it's it spread out that way, but we were just becoming aware of it in the, all those different places. So, well, when I came, when I came back to Chicago in March, I did, cause I did a big three month road trip around the South and um, to the West coast. I got back home in March a week before Chicago shut down. Hmm. Uh, my best friend went to go see my favorite physical therapist. And he said that he has friends in, um, in intelligence and, that week, he was like, yeah, they've been seeing this on the ground since like last December. Mm. So there was talk in the intelligence committee that we heard about just from friends of friends in March that like, oh, no, this has been a, in the country for a while. They, just, mm. they didn't know what it was. And then I went back and saw this report that there was a confirmed coronavirus case. I think it was College Town, Texas on like January 22nd. And when mm. I plotted out all the days that I went to parties, I went to workshops. 
I taught a random dance class. I was like, man, somebody from one of those places crossed tabs. <laughs> I just thought, you know what? It's, I probably had it then. Like, mm. just, I mean, I even said to friends who I was messaging with on my drive, I said, I've never been this sick in my life. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not somebody who like really has gotten knocked down by sickness in the last 10 years. Mm. So it was just, my best buddy was like, I bet you got it on that drive. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And the more I thought about mm. it, I was like, you know, I probably did. That was how I left Texas was um, with uh, what seemed like a cold and turned into like a, a coughing situation and night sweats and cold chills and fever. Um, mm. But I had been doing some dance workshops and just some social dancing in Texas, which was great fun, kind of reconnecting with old blues friends and fusion friends. And my aim for the rest of that trip in early 2020 was to um, just spend time with friends in California and in the Pacific Northwest and do a few uh, lessons at fusion venues on the West Coast. And what was interesting about that trip was that even though I was booking a lot of dance stuff, everybody who hired me for private lessons or private time actually hired me for personal training. So Mm. I'd be at the venue doing a dance lesson, dancing with people, and then my friends would message me and go, hey, you're in town. Can we do a workout session? I have a knee issue. <laughs> so uh, thus begun my transition from training, uh, doing personal training with strangers to doing personal training with my dance community, which wasn't a place that I had previously uh, mined for training connections. So, mm. uh, Which we might need a little context there that... I took a break in 2015, 2016 from touring and dancing to working at gyms and sticking close to home and not traveling and just doing personal training. So that might be some background stuff that we could dig into. For sure. And we'll definitely get more into your background overall and what you've done in the dance scene and the dance scenes that you have played in and things of that nature. But yeah, the pandemic was definitely interesting just to kind of share some more thoughts on that. I actually went to Hawaii in January and I was teaching in Waikiki for a salsa festival there. And when I came back, me and the girl that I traveled with both like got ill at the same time and we didn't know what it was, but um, it kind of knocked us down for a few days. I think she struggled with it longer. This was like mid-January, end of January. Was it before I stayed at your place or after? Like, because I was there for two weeks and you were... I want to say it was after. Dude, I might have left the virus at your house. Mm. Or (laughs) at the airport in Hawaii or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. No masks anywhere. It's it's interesting. Like when you travel a lot, you get exposed to a lot of different things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking about... Not traveling, you know, and not the pandemic's not happening. I'm sorry, the pandemic is happening. But like when you do travel and go to a dance event, like it's crazy how it takes a toll on you. And I don't think you really get a chance to feel the toll until you get a chance to kind of like sit down for a minute, you know, but you're traveling. So you're away from home. You're not eating properly with your diet. You're not sleeping properly. You're expending more energy than you do on a normal day-to-day basis. You're in contact with more people than you are with on a day-to-day basis. 
And so just so many things that are not putting you at your optimal, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's fun to travel and see people and dances and private lessons and all these kind of things. But then like being able to like holistically take care of yourself and travel to dance events is I don't I don't want to say it's impossible because I don't want to be like too pessimistic, but it's just it's definitely a challenge for sure. I really did a lot of thinking about that in that first year that I quit traveling because I was exposed to a regular sleep schedule again. Mm. And when I started to actually read about sleep and learn about it, I mean, I realized how much we how much we hurt ourselves and our learning process at the dance festival where you take workshops all day, you party all night, you sleep for four hours, and then you roll into class again. Mm-hmm. Like you lose that valuable sleep time that your brain uses to bank information and kind of reprocess it and store it. And I think the only reason dancers get good from going to dance festivals is just by sheer force of exposure. That mm-hmm. you could go to half as many festivals sleep better and become as skilled as the person who goes to like 20 or 30 a year, you know? Mm, Definitely. Um, We'll talk more about that life balance of being like a professional dancer and also listening to yourself, you know, because um, I also feel like there's a little bit of a ego in wanting to travel or FOMO, FOMO and ego mixed together. Uh in all of this, you know, and it's been interesting with the, with the pandemic, because now like FOMO is kind of like removed from the equation for everybody because there's nothing going on. (laughs) I love it. I love it. It it makes me feel so good about being at home and just taking care of myself is I'm not Mm. on Facebook seeing people go, it's a great time. I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're all at home cooking. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. We're, this is going to be a good pod, uh, good podcast. It's going to be lots of good conversation. I definitely feel in my podcast spirit that we're going to have multiple podcast episodes. But I guess let's go ahead and introduce who Ruby is to our audience. Yeah, because if my audience is in Kiz or in Zook or maybe they're in Europe somewhere, maybe they haven't heard of you um, because sure. of the circles that you've played in. So. Yeah. Um, before we get back to your actual like dance roots, can you give a nutshell of what your 2019 looked like? Like before the the pandemic and everything happened, what did that year look like in mm-hmm. a nutshell as as far as what you did in the dancing? Well, we might need to back up a little bit because I I took I did my last dance tour in 2015-2016. Mm-hmm. And from then, I dropped out of consistent travel. I went to maybe one or two events. Like I would just go for a weekend and come home. And so those four or so years were spent just working as a personal trainer, um, DJing at a local fusion venue and teaching occasionally or leading some local practicas. But before that, I was... I kind of mooshed over from the blues world into the fusion world. A lot lot of my Mm. blues dance friends had also kind of gone the fusion route. And so we had, uh, for a number of years, a really fantastic exchange um, called the Fusion Exchange that was Mm -hmm. run by my friend Ivy Gray. I keep hearing about this mythical lady. Yeah, Ivy, uh, Cameron, and uh, Andrew Sutton, I think, were kind of the triad of sort of you know, three very different heads for business and dance mm-hmm. getting together and saying, let's put this thing together. And what 
what was so excellent about that event was that there were there were like five or six different dance parties happening at any given moment, kind of depending on the venue they had. So you could go to a room that was like hip hop dance party room. You could go to mm. a salsa room. You could go to uh, an old timey swing room. You could go to like the just straight up lyrical electronic fusion dance room. Mm. They had DJs from all over the country. They always had a couple live acts doing some really cool kind of um, modern electronic tribal type stuff. And they would hire, they would hire top West Coast swing, top Argentine tango, top uh, samba, some really cool solo dancers, some African solo dancers, and just teach fantastic classes. And so you got exposed to a ton of dance styles. Yeah. And and then you'd get to dance with, you get to dance with the people who were really good at their craft, but Mm. were also really cool with breaking outside of their own, their own forms and patterns and being willing to adapt to yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've talked, yeah. I've talked with Vanessa um, Mm -hmm. about Ivy a lot and what her vision was and, how she was envisioning like top tier dancers from multiple genres coming to like have a, like a play session in a sandbox, if you will. At least that's my understanding of what her vision was, but that's what she was aiming for. And I guess for one reason or another, that's not exactly what ended up happening um, with the direction of fusion overall. Yeah. Well, it it changed over time. You know, I, I feel lucky that I got to ride the coattails of that event for the last few years in that I felt like they gave me, they let me teach the content I wanted. Mm. Um, they gave me, they gave me access to, you know, like they highlighted me and, you know, made sure I had good private lesson bookings and I had a great time teaching there. But as, as a pro teacher, I wouldn't say, you know, like I can't compel, compare myself to Mario Robau, mm-hmm. you know, top West Coast swing instructor. But what Ted Madry, who was my partner for a lot of the classes there, what he and I were doing were is we were really we were really trying to teach fusion as a sort of dance for itself and mm-hmm. dig into like what is fusing dances together? What is fusion as its own thing as opposed to representing a specific genre dance? And that was that was just a great intellectual fun to be able to do that and to have so many people be there for that process. Can you give context of how big this event was as far as yeah. attendance? <laughs> well, you know, I came from I came from house parties and flying to a city and staying in somebody's house, you know, swing and blues events were like go to your go to the bars and the clubs in that mm-hmm. local town, stay in someone's living room and just kind of go like pub crawling in a way. And the idea of going to like a Congress at a hotel was never really part of the swing and blues world that I came from. But I think Ivy and Andrew and Cameron, they clearly wanted something that would appeal to the pros and the dancers who travel the world and go to the big events. So they would rent a big hotel and four or five, maybe 600. Mm. I mean, we were in some big hotels, multiple floors, big dance rooms, just like massive, massive, you know, and everybody's staying in the hotel, which is great fun. You just get to like wander the halls and go visit your friends and party in hotel exactly. rooms. So it's a totally different experience. This is fantastic. I got you. Awesome. So that was, 
that, that was probably the last. That was probably the last big stuff that I did that was that would have put me in contact with a lot of different dancers from different worlds. And then after mm-hmm. that, just teaching um, teaching workshops um, mostly on the West Coast when I would go over there to visit. Um, the folks over there are always very kind and would book me for like a month series or something like that. Nice, that's awesome. So that's how you kind of spent, I guess, your last days. Um, as a pro teacher, but then you mentioned before you made that transition into more of personal training, you know? And yeah. one of the things that we talked about in the, in the conversation that we had that was where we found out that we were of each other's caress <laughs> was like, I guess, being really um, inspired by like accountability and focus and consistency and mm-hmm. systems and, and things of that nature, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not sure if I remember this exactly from our conversation that we had before, but there was something about the training and fitness where you were able to kind of delve into that side a little bit more so than you could uh, in the dance world of things. Yeah. So I got into the fitness stuff primarily because I, when I was traveling through in the blues scene and a little bit before I started teaching blues nationally, I was competing pretty heavily and trying to hit as many competitions as I could. And blues dance started having solo dance competitions and they were, they were presented as cutting competitions, which is not something that I've seen in other dance worlds. Like you see, you go to like a swing dance, like a solo jazz dance competition and they're out there trying to one up each other, but it would be like dancer A spotlight leave dancer b spotlight leave dancer c spotlight leave and then the audience or the judges you know pick the top three of the six or whatever Mm -hmm. but in the blues world what they started to create was two people battling against each other and originally it was a very loose circle like you would just jump in kind of like late night club style and challenge somebody and then maybe somebody would jump in and you know one of you would back out And then they started making it really structured, kind of like b-boy competitions. I mean, Mm -hmm. they were even doing the point thing. So if if your audience members haven't seen a b-boy competition, um, load them up on YouTube. They're great fun. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And if if you get to see more than just the dancing, you'll see once the competition is done, the MC will be like, and point. And the judges will point to whoever they think wins. And then that's it. That's the judging. Mm -hmm. You're done. And so they started doing that at Blues events. and. I felt like in order to up my, uh, my competition edge, I needed to up my athleticism. And I started going back to the gym. I think I'd also gained some weight somewhere. And I saw some pictures of myself and I was like, oh mm. no, I'm never going to get fatter than this. Like, this is it. I'm five feet tall, 129 pounds. I'm never going to weigh more than that. <laughs> mm. So I started working out. And the experience I got from working out was, the experience of, of progress through just consistent application of the same movement over and over again. And of course you can't do the same movement forever. You got to change it up. But I really enjoyed that progress and that experience. But when you're a traveling dance teacher, you give someone a lesson in a city and then that's it. Mm. And then you move on. And there were very few people in my home city who were as dedicated to dance where they would hire me for a package of dance lessons and show up every week and take notes mm-hmm. and practice. And those guys, and mostly guys, um, 
were extremely dedicated. Like I had one client with a binder and he had notes from every workshop he'd ever been to. Mm. And he could tell you, he could tell you exactly what everybody's pedagogy was. Well, Brenda teaches this. Well, Damon teaches this. Uh, Ogden and Amanda teach this. And I looked at that binder and I was like, man, you are, that is a gold mine right there. Mm -hmm. It is. (laughs) Yeah. It just is so, so impressive. That's something that most people just don't do. Um, Maybe, maybe you're an exception, Charles. Mm. But um, yeah, coming back from tour and just needing to take a break and quit traveling. uh, I had friends for a couple of years say, you know, you should really be a personal trainer. And I said, no way. I'm no, I'm not that now. And one day I just walked into my gym and I asked the trainer who I was on kind of a head nod basis with. I said, hey, can I, could I just have an hour of your time to sit down um, with a cup of coffee and just ask you about your job? And he said, sure. So we met me at a cafe and I just took notes and I said, well, what, what's this job like? What's, what's the one-on-one interaction like? What's the environment like? How do you, what, where, what kind of certification do you have to get? And he answered my questions for an hour and I took notes. And at the end of the hour, he said, yeah, you should really come work at our gym. I'm not allowed to say this, but we really need women. You'd have a really good shot. And I said, oh, no, no, I wouldn't want to work at my gym. You know, I, I would mm. want to work somewhere else. And he, was, he wasn't going to take no for an answer. And <laughs> I, I walked into workout a couple of days later and he walked up to me and said, oh, yeah, the manager is, uh, he's in today. You should go talk to him before you leave. And I said, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he just kind of pushed me towards the manager. And I sat down with him mm. for a minute and he said, okay, yeah, uh, well, can you come in for an interview tomorrow? And I said, okay. And he goes, well, do you have a resume? And I went, um, um, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went and made one up. Uh, I hadn't written a resume in years. and. My resume was, you know, I've been teaching adults how to move for the last 10 years and I'm really yeah. passionate about fitness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they pretty much hired me, uh, which that's kind of that's kind of an open secret in the fitness industry. Like if you walk into a big box gym and they hand you a trainer and if you want to work out during prime time, like 5 to 5 to 8 p.m., that trainer is brand new. they may not be certified yet you might be their first or their fifth client (laughs) Mm, i got you so um yeah Yeah, that's that's how i get into it my mind is going in different tangents so i'm going to try to organize my (laughs) tangents and not forget them um but it goes i was some of hearing what you said i guess let's talk about the the dance students and then i want to touch base on um, we talked about how the differences between men and women and how they approach opportunities mm-hmm. uh, and preparedness and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder in the in the dance scene, you know, in fitness, like it's really a personal goal type thing. Yeah, it's yeah. really not contingent upon somebody else's assessment of your skill or dancing with somebody else or like. Mm, I the only time it is, is if you're getting married. If you're getting married, it is mm. <laughs> the wedding fitness. <laughs> I got you. So it seems like like that would be more of a, a personal thing to like hold you accountable. Yeah. Yep. And nobody can do the push-ups for you. 
you know? Right. And I feel like in the dance scene, like it gets a little bit blurrier because like if you want to grow as a follow and you dance with a good lead, but that lead compensates for you, or Mm -hmm. maybe I don't even want to say it's an ego thing. I'm I'm curious to hear how you distinguish between the both, but I feel like uh, a fitness client will be more personally driven and not really... Of course, there's other people in their lives that are going to like maybe support them or not, but I feel like it's more coming from an internal source, I feel. And in the dancing, we have ego, we have flash, we have like mm. acceptance in the overall ecosystem of a certain skill level and things of that nature, but it could still be intrinsic and internal to like become a better dancer. But I feel like there's a lot of more noise around in the dance scene, I would assume, which, and it's more of a (laughs) fitness, like, it's not really like an escape. It can't be an escape or like, it's not like, um, Hey, I'm going to go party. You know, you don't go to a fitness party, if you will. Yeah. And fitness is like focus, consistency, like discipline, like all those are kind of intrinsic factors. And I don't feel like those same values translate over to the dancing. They can, it's not impossible, but it's not as common. Yeah, you know, dancing is dancing supposed to be about fun. Mm. One of one of the West Coast swing teachers in Chicago, I think her name is Colleen, client of mine just quoted her, said that at a beginning dance class, the, the purpose of the class is not to teach you to dance, it's to teach you that dancing is fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that you'll keep coming back. And just there's so much there's so much offloading of responsibility in the partner dance world because Mm. you can always internally blame your partner if you're having a bad time. Mm. Whereas I think the thing that makes fitness so hard for people is you really can't offload responsibility if you don't show up, you know, Mm -hmm. you only can if you like, you find out later that your trainer was stupid, you know, Mm. and taught you bad form. But, um, you know, in terms of practicing, I feel like the only people who are really motivated to practice partner dance and and like the type who geek out and make notes are the teachers, you know, Mm. like, because we have to, because we have to present something in an organized fashion. That's the point at which we start to like classify things. Yeah. Um, Although to correct myself, you know, that one student who showed up with the binder, he wasn't a teacher. He never aspired to be a teacher. He was just, he was a lawyer in his previous iteration. Mm. So he was somebody who just worked really well with like organizing and note taking. So it might also be like a skill that people bring or don't bring with them to the world of dance. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like all teachers are not created equal either. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, there are some teachers that are more driven to like create a pedagogy. And there's Mm -hmm. some teachers that are kind of like, more flashy, driven by ego and like the um, allure of being an artist and just within reach of their students or consumers. I did a podcast (laughs) with my friend Lydia and she said there's a big difference between like a true instructor and a student looking to be taught versus an entertainer and consumers looking for that entertainment, you know? Yeah. And those lines get blurred a lot um, in the partner dancing. But Another question that's kind of like rhetorical is like, can discipline be fun? 
And if so, like, how can you facilitate that kind of environment? You know, because. Oh, my God. Um, Pearl, this is the question of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm literally, I mean, dude, you just hit on it so hard. I'm, I'm just like, people pay me money and they're like, help me get fit. And I'm like, great. I have a system. It's, mm-hmm. an, it's a system that's going to help you not get injured. We are going to start from the beginning. You're going to crawl like the baby and mm-hmm. we're going to build you from the ground up. Even if I know you as a dancer, as somebody who can mm-hmm. move around on two feet, you know, as the advanced ape, yeah. like, we're going to, and we're going to just systematize this and you're going to go through. And that by the time we get to kettlebell swings and squats, you're going to be, a, you're going to be a rock mm-hmm. and people just struggle. And <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I don't know how to, I'm really struggling with this. I don't know how to be like, look, you, you paid the money. Like, <laughs> are you going to show up for yourself every week? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm here for our appointment every day or every two days or every seven days, but like, you got to still go. I can't mm-hmm. do the push up for you. <laughs> exactly. For sure. Which like going back to our original point, like, fun is involved in dance. So it's easy to get addicted to the dance for the sake of fun and like chasing that Mm. fun and things of that nature and having a good time, which is an important part of life. Like life should be fun. Yeah. And then like if you use the word discipline or technique or consistency, like now like the clouds roll in and the sun goes away and all that kind of stuff. It it doesn't have to have that negative connotation to it, you know? Um, I also feel like professionally as a, an instructor, sometimes you do feel a little bit lonely. It's not as inspiring to go and travel to teach and you put so much thought into your lesson plan and like you want to see growth. And yes. that's what inspires you. It's like, uh, what good, what is an instructor without a dedicated student, a hungry yes. student? You just like, <laughs> you feel like lonely. Yes. Right. You, you teach this whole class on, on, um, how to not on floor craft, right? How to mm-hmm. not bump into each other on the dance floor. And then you go out that night and five <sighs> people crash into you and don't mm. even verbally or, or just with their eyes acknowledge like, oh, are you okay? Mm. Like, I just taught you this for two hours. <laughs> exactly. So like part of, of my hunger as an instructor, as a dedicated instructor who's nerdy and geeky and like wants to see their students grow like when students don't show up, it's kind of like, well, if you don't want it, then I don't want to like waste my time investing this uh, passion of mine into like someone that's not seeking that, you know? Yeah. And so I don't know, like maybe in the Tangle world, I've heard that like some Tangle instructors, like they don't chase students, like they have to choose the student that shows that like they're ready to be taught and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like there's some merit in that because. Sometimes if the instruction is not appreciated and things yeah. of that nature, then it's just kind of like it falls on, on deaf ears sometimes, you know? Yeah. So I've, I've, I've I definitely a- feel <laughs> that lonely. What were we going to say? Well, I've, there's a couple different thoughts that come to me on that. One of my managers at the first gym that I worked at, and I've worked at two, I've worked for two gyms. One was a big box gym, mm-hmm. big chain, just cranking out cranking out memberships, cranking out trainers. There were 27 mm-hmm. trainers working there when I started. The, one of the outgoing managers said to me, he said, you know, when I started training, 
I would just take anybody who would come along, you know, I would just, okay, yeah, let's go. So when I got to the end of my training, I was like, I don't know, can you train with me? I wouldn't mm-hmm. take everybody. I would only take the most committed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's like part of your process as a, as a dance teacher. Like first you take everybody, you take every job, you say yes to mm-hmm. everything. And then you start, you start to filter out what, what's worth your time, you know, and yeah. who to deliver your message to. And I think it's really important to think about that, whether you're posting on social media or just talking to your friends who ask you questions or talking to prospective clients or deciding whether or not you give like a discount for a first session. Mm. You know, gyms always expect trainers to give a free first session. And I recently decided I'm just going to stop pimping the free first session. Mm. Like if somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, I know we get a complimentary session. Can I have mine with you? I'll be like, yeah, for sure. Because they sought me out. But I'm just done pimping the free first session because it's like, Mm. you didn't pay for it. You don't value it. Exactly. You know, that hour was worth nothing to you. And I'm getting paid, you know, a minimum wage. Let's do a session where you pay money. And then every Mm -hmm. word, you will be like, okay, okay, let me write this down. (laughs) For sure. You know, and then here's another question. Does money paid equal commitment? Because now I've had students that have paid me upwards of a thousand dollars who still don't record themselves you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or not showing up and doing their practice sessions and things like that so it's like okay you're paying me that's awesome i'm getting the money that i feel is worth my time but i'm still not seeing this the level of accountability on their end to like now show up in the best way that they can to complement that with my approach to really see some results, you know? Right. Well, I think it's really important to understand the types of, the types of clients and students that we have. Like, mm-hmm. there are some clients who they're only going to work out when I show up and I say, do this now, do this now, mm-hmm. do this now. And I can say the name of the exercise for the 27th time and they'll be like, <laughs> they'll be like, bent over rows. And I'll be like, okay, you're bent over, you're rowing, mm-hmm. right? So you're pulling. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, is that the thing on the bench? Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. And then they like round their back. And I'm like, remember what we said about flat back? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and there are other people who they'll text me, you know, in the middle of the week and be like, what was that extra? Okay, you wrote this exercise down in my program. Is that this thing with the feet together or the one foot? And I'm like, oh, cool. You're trying to recall, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you extra love. I'm going to send you a mm-hmm. video. I'm going to, you know, put extra notes in your program. And so, like, when people pay, again, offloading responsibility, right? When people mm-hmm. pay money, they're offloading the responsibility of the teaching process onto us. But I mean, I was stupid in that I didn't hire a trainer. Like I should have hired a trainer to better teach me how to squat and deadlift. Like I had a, I had a girlfriend teach me years and years ago, the basics. But when I got Mm. back into it, I should have hired somebody to teach me because I hurt myself really bad. Mm. But I was so motivated and passionate and broke. I couldn't afford a trainer or I didn't feel I could. And so I was just always researching, always learning, always making notes, always trying to get more information, which is why I'm like the font of random knowledge that I am now. 
but that's me, you know, being obsessive and cultivating this like need for knowledge. And not everybody's like that. For you know, sure. they just want to look cool at the party and they want to just like walk around with their tank top in the summer and like not be embarrassed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes sense. So I guess it's like figuring out the goals, you know, and then like coming to that uh, acknowledgement of like where they're at and where you're at. Does this exchange, is it worthwhile to you to like understand that and make peace with it? Or do you yeah. want to like now not accept that client and look for somebody that like more closely aligns with your ideals, you know? Yeah. I mean, Charles, like, what if you had like an older female student who she's 50, she's made money, she doesn't want to take notes, she doesn't want to mm-hmm. watch a video of herself dancing. She just wants you mm-hmm. to show up every week and dance with her for an hour mm-hmm. and like just help her get a little bit better. You know, what if she mm-hmm. just, what if that's it? What if that's her fun? Is I have this cute, nice handsome instructor comes over to my house teaches me to dance mm-hmm. and then i go to the party and i'm like I wear my cute mm-hmm. outfit you know like mm-hmm. that's the value she's getting take for that sure. money <laughs> I, for, like there's the monetary aspect of it is for sure you know but okay another thing like that's totally valid what you shared for sure and i actually can think of many students of who have taken private lessons who are just kind of like more along those lines you know mm-hmm. And like that person isn't talking a high talk and then not following through. Yeah. So there's like understanding. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes it's the opposite. It's like, oh, I want to get really good and I want to train and all these kind of things. And then, okay, let's do it. And then like, I think that's where there's more of a a friction thing where they're not following through with like what they say they want. Oh, okay. The contract. What you need, I think you, Charles, you need a contract. Mm -hmm. So. When <laughs> this one's new for me, I just I just mm-hmm. um, rewrote my like policies and procedures, and mm-hmm. it used to just be about like, um, and this is like on the training side, right? I never had like a dance contract, mm-hmm. um, although that might change if I had a if I had like private dance students again. It used mm-hmm. to just be like, okay, here's the scheduling rules. You know, here's when you lose your session if you schedule too or you cancel too late. Here's how to mm-hmm. communicate with me if you have an injury, like please tell me right away, blah, blah, blah. But now my contract also has stuff about like, you will, you will use my tracking method. Like, mm-hmm. this is why you hired me. It, like, even if you don't like my trapping, tracking method in the beginning, you will try it. And if mm-hmm. you come up with a better system, we'll use your system, but you will use mm-hmm. my system. <laughs> mm-hmm. sure. You will, you will, and like, you're not just learning how to do a push up. You are learning a system of accountability and you will try my system because this is what I am selling you. And if you don't want to try it, like don't expect results. Mm. So like you, Charles, are not just teaching people where to step and where to put their hands and how to like follow or lead. You're also teaching them a system of, of progressing on their own. And I think that's, I think that's an important thing to present to people when you're saying, Hey, you know, this is, this is what happens when you take a lesson or 10 lessons with me. Yeah, for sure. You know, and what makes you understand. special. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure there's some other instructors across the world listening as well that could resonate with that message as well. And going back to your um, idea of like the 50 year old lady taking private lessons, like I don't have any problem with those people showing up. But if that was the only students that I had, let's say I had 
three months of only that type, then you that's a, like a different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now I wonder, like, and that this is something that's like ongoing. Like, what is? How do you recharge and fulfill that dance cup so you can mm-hmm. have like maybe not as inspiring lessons and things of that nature, but it's it's getting the bills paid, and that's totally um, necessary to. Yeah make it as a dancer. But then at the same time, you want to be able to continue to give. And if your cup is running low, you know, then sometimes those sessions are a little bit heavier than what they should be because you're not coming from a, a full cup of inspiration or passion or whatever you want it is in your cup that like gives you meaning in that regard, you know? You know, I was just thinking about, um, I subscribe, of course, to a bunch of different trainers who you know have blogs and mailing lists and stuff mm-hmm. and i came across an article from somebody and i'm i i can't i'm sorry i can't credit who they are because i just was like scanning my email really fast but mm-hmm. it was it was a like what do you do if you're a trainer and you're passionate about working with a particular population like you want to mm-hmm. help trans youth you know but trans youth can't afford to pay you 80 or 100 dollars an hour like that's mm-hmm. just you're never gonna you're never gonna survive serving that population. Mm-hmm. And the trainer wrote about like fine, you know, hire the population or or target your marketing towards the population that's gonna pay your bills and charge enough to get that stuff covered, but that gives you enough free time to then serve the population that fills mm. your cup, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's probably some there's probably some young um, badass dancers out there who can't afford you, but that like mm-hmm. you could, you know, you could start to serve that population as long as you're getting your, you know, your bill paid by other things. Yeah, by the like it was the same thing with running dance venues. Like what we figured out was the dance venue has to have young, cute college students, mm. so that the older. Um, people who it was like the, the people who have time but no money, right? Mm-hmm. Who are attractive and make the dance floor pretty, so that the older people who have money but no time will come and pay for the lessons and pay for the private lessons, and mm. you get them to all intermingle, and there's your dance community pays the bills, yeah. and you have a good party. <laughs> for sure, definitely. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I've heard of that before. When you start to take a look at the demographics and just what kind of people are going through in their lives and things of that nature, you know? Right. And one of the things we'll, we'll kind of go into as well with your dance training is you've worked with a, a variety of different partners on kind yeah. of like an as needed basis versus having like one set dance partner, yeah. which I don't feel is super common in partner dance world. No. And so um, before we get into that, I, I don't want to forget to give you um, some space to talk about Um, your first introduction to dance Mm. and kind of like, how did that all get started? Cool. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I'll say this. I actually had aspirations of being a performance artist and a circus artist in my twenties. And Mm -hmm. I was studying at the San Francisco circus center. Um, before it was actually the San Francisco circus center, it was run by, um, totally different folks. And I was learning trapeze and I was doing all this really hardcore stuff. And I had a medical condition that caused me to bleed like 12 days a month. And I just, I ran out of blood, literally, like 
I walked into a doctor's office and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And he was like, you're anemic. Like I can just look at you and see that you're anemic, but let's do a blood test and confer. Yes, you're anemic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was a whole other journey. And if any, uh, if any women in your social network want to know more about uterine fibroids, I know a lot about uterine fibroids. I got you. And was able to solve that problem. It took about a year. But while I was waiting to kind of figure out what was wrong with me, I was, I was just motivated and passionate about learning some kind of movement. And I couldn't do circus because I was just so exhausted. So I took up taking social dance classes at the local community college in San Francisco. And because I was still really tired, I was always that girl in the corner eating a sandwich because I didn't know how else to like get my energy up. But like I'd go to dance class and I'd eat a sandwich. Mm. And then I joined a couple dance teams and go to practice, eat a sandwich. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the gals in the dance teams took me to... And this was a blues dance team? Oh, no. This blues didn't even exist as a social phenomenon at that point mm. or like re-exist. This was... Uh, I was in a West Coast swing team and uh, we did West Coast and salsa uh, choreography, which prob- probably isn't in my bio because it was so... Just so way back. Mm-hmm, for sure. <laughs> but uh, one of the girls on the team took me to Lindy in the park. She's like, have you been to Lindy in the park? And I was like, what is, what is Lindy? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then she took me to the metronome ballroom. And, you know, I just, I remember the first night dancing there because I had, because I had learned ballroom dance. And, you know, when you take ballroom classes, you learn a bunch of dances and you learn them in the context of like, here's this pattern for this music. Here's this pattern for this music. Here are the rhythms. And mm. standing on the side of the room, she got asked a whole bunch to dance because she was cute and she obviously knew how to dance. And I was just standing there with my hands in my pockets like, doo, doo, doo. and finally somebody asked me to dance. And I said, yeah. And I turned to her and I said, it's step, step, triple step, right? And she goes, yeah. and I went out there and I was like okay I can do this and several people asked me oh are you uh where was this no this was Lindy night this is Lindy night I one of the guys at the at the dance taught me the Charleston on the floor like just Mm. oh you don't know the Charleston like no he's like oh it's like this I was like okay great and so that's like I've done a bunch of the ballroom stuff, but the ballroom social seemed kind of stodgy. And the Lindy mm. scene was like, it, people, it was energetic. It was full of young people. It was just like a real fun party atmosphere. And people would go out and socialize and like go eat late night food afterwards. So I got kind of sucked into the Lindy Hop world in San Francisco. And it was the heyday uh, for Lindy Hop in San Francisco. There were like... Mm. Five or six venues a week, you could go dancing. Um, And then there were live bands. And you could dance seven seven or eight nights a week. And uh, Lindy in the Park on Sundays. And just like really cool, really friendly social scene. And from there, I got invited to late night blues parties, which I would say now were the... They were really fusion parties, but we called them... I don't know. Eventually, we called them blues parties. It was they were just parties, but there was mm-hmm. a lot more kind of like sexy, groovy R and B, less of the old time jazz, and mm-hmm. uh, just kind of got into that scene. And then discovered blues and blues events. People were starting to throw blues events, 
And that's kind of where I got into the traveling. I traveled to a few Lindy Hop events, had a great time. I could see that I wasn't going to become a hardcore competitor or teacher mm. because I could, see, I could see that the athleticism for Lindy Hop was really high. And even though I was in a Lindy performance team for a brief period of time, I was also really aware I was like, holy fuck, like the toll on your body is doing mm-hmm. these aerials. Like if you want to perform in Lindy Hop, you have to do aerials. Like, Mm -hmm. unless you're an old timer, you have to fly. And I had already, I had already tried circus and been like, fuck, this is hardcore. (laughs) 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 But blue, blue's not more accessible. It was like a little slower, a little juicier. Um, The range of, the range of music is actually uh, quite a bit wider in terms of Mm. happy, sad, just a happy sad range is much bigger. Mm-hmm. The range of tempos is a lot bigger and socially it was super fun. And so I started, I started traveling to more and more with kids. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I know so little about kids. Like it's like mm-hmm. a, it's definitely a mystery world to me. So that's I cool to you. hear. The cool. tempo range is huge. You can have something that's like, 70 beats per minute, or you can have like a Semba song that's like easily 110, 120 beats per minute, you know? Oh, very cool. Lots of different uh, languages from Portuguese to Creole to French to English. Oh, wow. And then there's English remixes of things as well. Okay. Um, yeah. Are you, how familiar are, are you with bachata? You know, bachata is my least favorite Latin dance. <laughs> mm. So the parallel that I want to drive was a bachata is like there's the authentic oh, I'm version. Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm to- I'm misspeaking. I am I I'm thinking about uh Heriberto um and remembering doing bachata with him. He changed my mm. mind. <laughs> ah, I got you. Heriberto is an instructor out of uh Cleveland, yes. Ohio. Yes. And they they teach at a Viva Dance Studio. So yes. uh, if you're in Cleveland, Ohio, definitely check out that studio there. It's called Viva, V-I-V-A. Nice. But bachata, there's like the traditional version of bachata that's like what you get in the culture in the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the English remixes of like the top 40 music. Yeah. So that spectrum Uh, kind of exists. And so that also exists in kids. You have the more authentic vibes of like what you would see in uh, Portugal and in Angola, the polar culture, if you will. But then you have kids remixes of Beyonce and Drake and Jay-Z and oh, wow. all these kind of things. So like that spectrum also exists. <laughs> and so depending on what you like, you can kind of listen to those musical okay. vibes. Let me ask you a question. When you have mm-hmm. those remixes, which I suspect have more like electronic beats and maybe less mm-hmm. syncopation, do, are there dancers in the community who say that's not kids, it's something else? Or is it so just like, this yeah, is no, the kids. distinguishing of like authentic kizomba and urban kids. So oh. they still fall under the the overarching kizomba umbrella, um, okay. but they are definitely have different camps. You have people that prefer more authentic vibes, and you have people that prefer more urban. There's people that love it all, and there's definitely people that are like eighty twenty either way, and then okay. there's all the people that are like one hundred percent either okay. way. Yeah. Like Argentine um, tango but, and tango nuevo. Mm-hmm, exactly. But like, I mean, you have to respect the roots of where it came from. And you're going to yeah. see similarities and all that kind of stuff. So I'm more known for the Urban Kids side of things. My festival is the biggest Urban Kids festival 
in North America. So mm-hmm. like that's where I've put my 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 stake, my flag in the ground. Right but on. if you take a class with me and your fundamentals are gone, I'm going to pull the techniques that I've learned from more traditional kids because you need to understand where this moose comes from so that yeah. way you know understand how they executed in urban kids, you know. So yeah. um I the music, if we're talking about music, definitely urban kids all day. If we're talking about dance technique and dance history, I feel like it's very important to like have a a, a full spectrum of, of both. I would, you know, I would definitely say that even though I went from dancing and teaching at blues exclusive events to mm. just getting really deep into the fusion world, when I teach blues classes, even if it's for fusion mm. dancers, I will only play strict blues. But mm. if you ask me to DJ your venue and fusion is is allowed, I love, love, mm. love, love kind of the fusion side or like the urban side or like the hip hop side of blues For sure. influenced music. And I think just because I spent so many years in strictly blues, like I, I'll get real bored at a weekend of strictly blues all weekend. Like mm. I need some variety in my yeah, beats. That makes sense. Yeah. For sure. But um, definitely going back to roots. <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like your perception and not you specifically, but like a person's uh, perception of variety is is subjective. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I can go to like a traditional kids party and you won't hear any ghetto zook. Anything that's electronic is super rare. So mm-hmm. all straight band music mm-hmm. that's being played all night, you know. Mm-hmm. And so not a lot of variety there, you know. And then you can go to a kid's party where there's like 50-50 uh, ghetto zook and the other kind of like more traditional sounds. Yeah. And ghetto zook yeah. is interesting because the people who create ghetto zook are of Palop descent. So meaning that they have like in their bloodline ties to uh, Angola, Cape Verde or any other Portuguese speaking African country. Gotcha. Uh, that's what Palop means, by the way. I'm not sure if you've heard of that term or not. I had not. Um, I was going to ask they, for the spelling on that. It's uh, Países Africanos con la Lengua Oficial Portugués. P-O-L... P-A-L-O-P. P-A-L-O-P. Okay, got it. Mm-hmm. So, Paulo. Cool, thank you. It's definitely a niche thing in kids. And then on the urban side of things, you have people that play Ghetto Zook and lots of kids remixes, so you can go a whole night just kind of playing those things. But if you play a straight track of something, that looks that gets looked at weird. Oh, so their acceptance of kids only beats that are produced versus like, hey, this is a kissable track that can offset some people, you know. <laughs> and so this is why I really like fusion. And because you just have such a wide variety and a wide acceptance of things, you know. But yeah, if I play like some Missy Elliott or something like that, a straight track of that at a kid's social, mm-hmm. I will get weird looks. Like this guy is ruining the vibe of the night, you know. Oh, but if I play shit. a Missy kid's remix, that's okay. acceptable. Interesting, interesting. But they are on the more, I guess, non-conservative spectrum of the dance, but still have preferences of like, I want to stay within that bubble if you will you know yes and that's where i love dancing zook and i love dancing fusion because like none of that matters at all in the least and i'm like yes (laughs) (laughs) so it's interesting because the west coast has when you dance fusion up and down the west coast 
Um, there's definitely some regionality to mm. both West Coast fusion. Like there is a there is a defining kind of set of characteristics to what people consider fusion music on the West Coast, and it's there's a lot of like electronic beats, lyrical approaches, lyrical songwriting. And if you just play straight blues, people will be like, ugh. Um, mm. And they might not even like make a face. They will just demonstrate that they do not know how to interpret straight blues beats. Like they'll just mm. do weird floaty movement because that's the music they've been dancing to. And what I love about DJing in Chicago is because there's so little dogma in the fusion scene in Chicago right now, like before the pandemic, you can play literally anything. And mm. people, people are like, oh, cool. And there's enough people coming from blues, Lindy Hop, West Coast Swing, Salsa, that, they'll, that somebody will get on the dance floor and be like, oh, sweet, I totally know how to interpret this. And then other people mm. will get out there and do whatever they do. The dancing is exactly. not incredible, but there's, there's just very little dogma and judgment in the scene, mm. which is just, it's the sign of a fresh scene and it's very mm. refreshing. <laughs> yeah, it's very refreshing to see for sure. Yeah. And so before the pandemic hit, I was starting to dabble a lot more in fusion and I've organized some events with Vanessa. And yeah. I was also starting to dabble more in Zook just because there was a wide variety and less dogma about the music that got played. And Didn't I just found have- that so refreshing. As a Did dancer. you have a, a competition experience in Zook that you talked about yeah, or wrote so about? I, mm-hmm, I did. I wrote a blog about it. And basically, I wanted to bring the competition aspect of the Jack and Jills to yeah. Urban Kids. And cool. before I brought it to my event, I wanted to compete in the system to kind of see how it felt as a competitor. And Hi so there. I signed up for the novice level Brazilian Zook Jack and Jill. I only did two of them, but I got fourth place in my second one. Yeah. But because because of my clout in the kids scene, that bled over to the Zook scene because those scenes are kind of there's some overlap there. The between those, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I was able to luckily do some exchanges with some talents and follows uh, mm-hmm. who were able to give me pointers and things of that nature. Uh, so without them, I definitely would not have gotten fourth place in that second Brazilian Juke and Zook, Jack and Jill. And of course, I'm not like a new dancer. Yeah. So it's different if somebody is like, hey, mm-hmm. I'm a new dancer. Brazilian Zook is my first dance and I'm signing up for Back and Jill versus like, hey, I'm a pro in another dance scene, oh, but yeah. I'm novice in this dance scene. So it's just a little bit different. But even in the Zook scene, like their intermediate level, like that's where all their, the most of their instructors are. So. Even how you, because there hasn't been since the the, juke, the Jack and Jills, I keep on saying juke, which is like mixing Zook with the J and the Jack and Jills. <laughs> the Zook, Zook is a Jack different dance. <laughs> <laughs> so the Zook, Jack and Jills are new to the US. So it takes time for people to earn enough points to actually level up. So oh, obviously okay. a lot of the instructors started in novice and obviously over time they level up a from the actual novice dancers into yeah. the intermediate. And I just, I think there's just has to be enough competitions for them, enough of them to transition to the advanced level. And so I like that structure of the Jack and Jill's because regardless of how much tenure you have, you have to kind of like start at the bottom and work mm-hmm. your way up unless there's some rare exceptions. Yeah. Um, but um, I like the, you have to climb from your way up from the bottom. And so that was my experience with, uh, the Brazilian Zook Jack and Jill. And so I hosted an Urban Kids Jack and Jill. 
Um, and we talked about this in our in our call because, like you, you talked about how the competitions help reward um, a certain aesthetic of what the dance can be to like yes. also kind of like show that to other people like hey this is what we strive for to kind of set this is what the dance looks like at least and it's a moving thing it's not like static but at least at this point in time this is what we're rewarding and asking to see demonstrated in the competitions and such you know it's, it's been really interesting to see that happen particularly in the fusion scene um when switching became kind of a national conversation and mm. I I think I can take a little bit of credit for that in that I I think that Justin Riley and I were the first to ever switch in a blues competition mm. and we did it without letting people know it was going to happen and mm. it's kind of fun occasionally I'll go back and watch that old video uh, we made it to finals and I don't know how we made it to finals because there were a lot of really amazing dancers in that field, but mm. we did. And everybody else in the finals was a fixed partnership except for Justin and I. It was the first time we had said, let's get together and practice before the comp. And so we had like a day mm. and a half to just work on stuff. And when we, we had our first switch, a few, a few people in the crowd went, huh? And then we switched back and you heard the crowd go, whoa. Mm. And it, it was wild because I, I really wanted to learn to lead and follow from the beginning of dancing. And my, I think the first national workshop I took, I took as a lead, even though I had been taking tons and tons of classes as a follow. And that was a Frankie Manning workshop. And mm-hmm. um, it's no longer Black History Month, but I just want to give a huge <laughs> shout out. Actually, this is this has actually been my argument on social media. Mm-hmm. Fuck you with your month. Your month. Every month is Black mm-hmm. History Month, and mm-hmm. I want to give a huge shout out to Frankie Manning because you know he personally influenced me. He was an old school Lindy Hopper who was in films and in performance in the 30s and 40s, and some um, suggestors brought him back out of retirement in the 90s and 2000s, and I saw him speak at San Francisco Community College and he was like 87 at the time. And mm-hmm. I thought, man, if this guy is jumping up and down and telling stories and he's still dancing, like this is the sport for me, you know, like mm-hmm. I could, I could do this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But um, can you give context for somebody who's never heard of Frankie Manning in like just one or two sentences? There's a great there's a great video on YouTube called Hell's a Poppin H E L L Z A Poppin P O P P I N and if you search for that on YouTube it's an old clip from this movie and there's a swing routine in it and it's the it's the thing that makes everybody think that swing dance is always throwing your partner in the air like you can swing, mm. you can d- dance a whole night without throwing your partner in the air but their performance was mind blowing and Frankie always joked. No, the video isn't sped up. That's actually how fast we danced. Mm. <laughs> and it's a famous it's a famous performance. It gets used all the time and Lindy Hoppers still pay homage to that by reperforming it. And mm. it's um it's like it's it's what Lindy Hop was at its height in that era and then it was brought back out in the 90s of course with the gap ad that was like the mm-hmm. thing that was <laughs> people joke in the Lindy scene if they're a pre or post gap ad. 
I got you. And so I know I've heard some people talk about Frankie, Frankie Manning being like the father of, of Lindy Hop or something in, along those lines. In a way, you know, he was the, he was the elder statesman that a lot of younger dancers looked to. Um, they went back and looked at those old vintage clips and watched them and tried to figure out how to do the movements. And of course, what was funny was that people would say is that if you danced with the Lindy Hoppers from Sweden, they didn't have any sense of lead or follow because they were just mm. dancing the patterns they saw on the video. And mm. over time, as people brought Lindy Hop back to America, they started teaching it in a lead or follow context. And like literally somebody looked up Frankie Manning in the, in the white pages and they were like, Hey, are you Frankie Manning the Lindy Hopper? And he goes, well, I'm Frankie Manning the postman. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, well, we saw you in this movie. Like they looked at the credits of the movie. They were like, how can we find these dancers to teach us these dance moves? And they found Frankie Manning and, you know, probably a few other people in that lineup. And they're like, oh, teach us how to dance. And mm. it went from that to like Frankie teaching on cruise ships and performing at huge events. And I, I think, he, I mean, gosh, I hope he just had a really wonderful like end of his life with just like thousands mm -hmm. of adoring dancers crediting him, you know, like For he sure. taught me how to dance. So to go back in time with my own history, I think my first national Lindy Hop workshop, or maybe my second was a Frankie Manning workshop. And I took it as a yeah. lead. And I was the only female lead in the whole workshop. And occasionally people would like make a thing about it. But I was like, whatever, like, I'm just here to learn. I'm into this. I want to figure out both sides. I want to understand the stance. And mm -hmm. so years and years later, I had been, you know, leading and following, leading and following, and still was known socially as a follow, but I really did like to lead. Justin and I decided to switch in a blues competition. And it, it was weird because before that, if I wanted to lead at an event, I pretty much had to dress up in men's clothing to signify that I'm leading. And occasionally, if a dude walked up to me and asked me to dance and I had my suit on, I'd be like, yeah, you can follow or we can have a man dance together. And they'd be like, oh, OK. And occasionally they would get a joke. You know, we would we would have fun and we would dance as two men. You know, if you watch two high level men dance together, it's a totally different dynamic than a, a, a cis hetero follow and a For cis sure. hetero lead, mm -hmm. you know. And after that competition, all kinds of people were asking me to switch with them. And I was like, okay, to the point where I was kind of like, dang, I just want to follow or dang, I just mm. want to lead. But going back to what we were talking about in competition, there is a purpose for this thread. Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm keeping track. Event organizers started organizing switch competitions in the fusion community. And there was a certain like, like they would give criteria, you know, like there had to be a certain amount of switching. And mm -hmm. I've seen this. Um, yeah. I want to say it was, Seattle is why yeah. I missed this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a long way to say that you can cultivate values in your community through competition by rewarding, rewarding the things that you want to see more of. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be cutthroat. It doesn't have to be always one-upping. It doesn't have to be like making people feel bad for losing. Like you can, mm -hmm. you can cultivate a celebration of movement and a celebration of values and competition. But 
it's a, it's a delicate balance. For sure. Definitely. Yeah. It's interesting being a quote unquote community leader. And I put that in quotes because I feel like the definition of that can vary Mm -hmm. uh, quite sparingly, uh, depending on different perceptions and dancings and things of that nature. Yeah. But competitions is interesting to see like West Coast Swing World competitions and then seeing the Jack and Jills in the in the Brazilian Zook world. And I didn't know even blues was that heavy into competitions. Um, so that's oh, also kind of like new information yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then pulling that into like salsa competitions. I've never seen Jack and Jill salsa, but like they definitely have like performance teams and choreographies and all that kind of thing uh, for those competition things, you know. And, and that's competitions doesn't have to be everybody's jam because I know some people aren't trying to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely gives. I remember being in the Brazilian Zoo Jack and Jill, like it gave me an incentive to like, hey, this is how I want to, sh- uh, I want to do well at this competition. So I'm going to practice. I'm going to train. Yeah. Which goes back to our previous th- thread of like consistency mm-hmm. and focus and discipline. What motivates people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I would definitely say competition motivated me to up my game. And it wasn't just because I wanted to like show off, but at the end of the day, if you go to a competition heavy, heavy event, and mm. the event is centered around the last half of the day is all prelims and the first half of the evening is competitions. If you're a competitor, you just get to dance more mm. <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of sit and watch other people dance, you know? For sure. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a side of me that definitely enjoys competition. Even speaking of the pandemic, I've picked up tennis and that's been really fun. Right on. And I love competing, not because I want to beat everybody and want to like, want other people to lose, but I just want to be able to perform at my best. You know, there's Mm -hmm. something that's addictive about that. That's really refreshing to like pursue, uh, over time, uh, through different skill sets and and things of that nature, you know, and it's nice to have that outlet. I feel like that's giving me a, a different renewed sense of like purpose, if you will, just knowing that I'm working towards that goal. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel this kind of purpose in the dancing. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have a dance partner and they weren't really like I was already at the organizer level. So like there weren't any competitions within my dance style. Um, There was international one, but I was hosting the competition for the North American edition of it. So I couldn't be like the master of ceremonies and then also compete compete there. Hell no. Um, And then even even if I was here in North America, I didn't have a dance partner to like take it to that level, you know, Um, to kind of scratch that itch of like, hey, I want to perform at my highest level. You know, just because I know that I have it inside of me. Um, So, yeah, on that note, what recharges you and and your dance passion? And I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure like maybe that's changed over the years and things Mm -hmm. of that nature, even with the pandemic and COVID and things of that nature. But I'm curious to hear where you've been and where you're kind of at now. You know, I'm going to answer that and kind of go back to something that we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, which is about like, you know, how people have the motivation to like do a thing to get better. And Mm -hmm. it was a conversation that I had with my friend, um, Dan Moore, who was a fellow uh, co-worker at a a grocery store I worked at in San Francisco. I worked at a cooperative grocery store named Rainbow Grocery, largest bulk department west of the Mississippi. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he, 
he and I were just like chatting in the freezer aisle one day and I had been talking about how I wanted to do more writing. And Dan was a painter in his spare time. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I just, I really, I really need to, I didn't really need to do more writing, you know? And I, and I was kind of expressing this, like this shouldism around writing. And he said, well, if you want to be a writer, you have to cultivate your obsession. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, think about it. Anybody who's really good at something is good because they are obsessed. They think about it all the time. And when they're not doing the thing, they're thinking about doing the thing. And I was like, oh, huh, okay. And I would say that 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 bit of advice did not cross over into me becoming an obsessive writer at all. But it Mm. did actually become the thing that allowed me to to become obsessively focused on dance and then later on fitness. Mm. And again, this is, this is why I struggle with clients because they have busy lives and, you know, I meet with them an hour, a couple hours a week to be like, here's Mm. a new movement you're going to do. Here's your plan. Here's some strategies, blah, blah, blah. But when I was learning how to work out, like really, really learning how to do it daily and have a practice and how to get better, I would spend four to five hours a day just watching videos, reading articles, reading books, Mm. making notes, just obsessively trying to figure it out and being like, butt wink? What's butt wink? What? Like, Mm. wait, how is my spine supposed to move? Wait, Mm. what's the best way to squat? Am I supposed to go ass to grass? Right? I'm sure sure your guests are like, what is she talking about? You can Mm. look these phrases up, butt wink and ass to grass. (laughs) And there are pages and pages of debates on the internet about how to squat. And it was the same thing with dance. I mean, if, if anybody peeped my, my YouTube account, I have a lot of playlists, like a sick amount of playlists. And so many of them are dance focused, you know, hip hop, West coast swing, Latin dance, blues, Lindy hop. And I would just watch videos and bookmark them and go back and study them and watch and watch and watch and study. And you know, the beauty of competitions existing is that competitions is where they capture the best dancing and the best video. And mm-hmm. without it, it's just a bunch of crazy social dancing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, I think the scenes that have the strongest technical dancers are those that, that really value competition. And it also it's might just be a bar for the scene. It does. It does. And, you know, I think that's what's, that's a great thing about West Coast Swing. Like West Coast Swing has a really strong pedagogy. Uh, you can you can look stuff up online and see people have like published their pedagogy about mm. rolling triples and footwork and exactly how to time box your beats and other dance styles that are more based around just like partying, house party. Like there's no pedagogy, there's no technical mm-hmm. level. It's just fun. Exactly. And so. It's like, what kind of dancer do you want to be? You know, where that, that is much like when someone asks me, I want to learn how to dance. What dance should I learn? I'm like, well, what music do you want to listen to? And Mm -hmm. what kind of community do you want to be a part of? That's, that's Mm going to be a big determinant. Yeah. So how does it tie into like dance passion for you today? For me? You know, I would I say I know you're focusing more on the fitness side yeah. of things, but like does that mean that do you like do you get any pleasure out of dancing? Are you doing any dancing nowadays? I 
I feel like I've been pretty disconnected from my regular dance practice for the last couple of years. And mm. I'm okay with it because a thing I've learned about myself is I always do something until I can't do it anymore until I'm like sick of it. Like I'm doing it mm. and I'm, I'm like, I fucking hate this. I'm so over this. And definitely the last few parties I went to, I didn't have a bad time, but I just thought, man, I'd rather be like working out. Or mm. I'd rather be at home reading a book. <laughs> Definitely. But somehow I've managed, I've managed to connect a lot of um, my training in the dance world right now. So I'm teaching a lot of dance, dancers how to do Turkish get-ups. And mm. the, when I was teaching group classes at my gym before the whole world kind of shut down, I would always joke around with my fitness students. I would come up with like weird stuff for them to do in class. Like I stole a dance pattern and made my, my group class do this like circular dance mm. pattern. <laughs> and I was like, five, six, seven, eight. And they were like, mm -hmm. huh, what is this? And I was like, I'm secretly <laughs> teaching you how to dance. Ha ha ha. Mm -hmm. And you know, if people are like rolling around on the floor and they start to get synchronized, I go, Oh, excellent. All right. Some of you are going to be on my dance team. And mm. so for me, I always joke that I teach dancers how to get strong and I teach um, strong people how to dance. And mm. I'm, I'm actually really interested in that intersection of like, just can you dance? Can you be fluid? Can you re retain choreography? Um, can you pick mm. up heavy stuff? Can you brace your core? Yeah. You know, and I think in that intersection, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff to be explored. For sure. We're going to go down that rabbit trail of just movement. Yeah. Because like mm -hmm. what differentiates fitness from dance? Right. Yeah. Cause it's still moving your body. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. you haven't gotten away from moving your body in an intentional way. Maybe the music is gone now. Right. Um, unless you have like a workout playlist, but like your workout playlist isn't necessarily like you're not trying to keep beat or cadence Ooh, or anything beat. like that. I know. Um, That's the next level. But getting people to lift on beat. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but going back to like the dance passion question, when you, when you, so this is what I'm starting to see now. And this is why I love the podcast and my curiosity of like snooping around in other dance scenes to kind of see <laughs> if there are other people like me, because mm -hmm. I definitely have felt lonely. Like I just recorded this one uh, video yesterday where I'm going into like level up your Saidas and I'm really sharing my pedagogy around like approach towards Saidas and how you can uh, be musical with them. And I'm like sh coming up with like shorthand to like <laughs> indicate you can just look at text and know what that means of what you're going to like implement on the dance floor, you know, oh. and how like, okay, this system doesn't exist, but it does exist in the social dance floor. And here's some videos where I see this uh, technique being implemented and so on and so forth. And what I see lacking in other beginner dancers and even advanced dancers being able to handle like Saida, which is a basic step, but you're not implementing it in a, in a masterful way of mm. like musicality. So mm -hmm. I really planned out this whole video with B-roll and I'm going to animate it. And so it's going to be cool. But like, this is where I feel like I'm like operating in my zone of genius and it's fucking awesome. Yeah. yeah. But when I take a look at my other instructor colleagues in the kids world, Nobody's even coming close to this, mm -mm. you know, mm -mm. and I'm like, I can't I, I know that I'm not crazy for thinking this way. Yeah, I'm not some <laughs> psycho, you know, that like this just makes so much sense to like document and 
let's come up with an approach and then let's test it. And then a year later, come back and see, like, do these things still hold true? You know? Mm. Um, so when I hear you and the other more established dance scenes talk about um, pedagogies and time boxing and classifying things and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, fucking yes. Like, where can I find more of this? Oh, and yeah. this has inspired me to like, uh, I guess, just find other dancers and other dance styles and things of that nature. And almost why, like, I don't want to disconnect my roots to kids, but I need to like find other sustenance of my intellectual pursuits and analytical pursuits uh, to kind of keep feeding my soul, if that makes sense. Oh, so yeah. It's interesting. Well, you know, I think this is like, I think this is really the heart of, I think why fusion it gives me so much. Like I, I don't ever consider like, even though I've been kind of out of practice and the pandemic has definitely given me that excuse to not even have to work on anything. Mm. It's not like, okay, when events happen again, it's not like I won't be there. I will just be showing mm. up with a whole different set of material that no one's ever seen. Like what? That the hell has mm. we been doing for the last two years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll be like, be like, yo, you're gonna learn how to breathe. Okay, this is real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, inside inside the world of a single dance, there there is like infinite rabbit hole in terms of how to interpret mm. all of, all of like the things that you're teaching and learning. But when you start to fuse things, you there are like there are assumptions that every practice that every dance has, you know, whether it's lifting weights or playing tennis or or tango. And when you start to zoom out and step back and look at like, well, what are the assumptions of this practice? And then what are the assumptions of this other practice? You start you start to become more of a scientist and a philosopher in looking for principles that unite them. Mm. You know? And when you start to see oh, well, this principle is at work here and it's also at work here, but there's a slight variation and you start to understand like what overriding principles are going to be about any movement. Mm. It'll like, it allows you, I mean, just as somebody who went from kids to a Zook competition, right? You already had a set, a set of overriding principles that guide your dancing. And mm-hmm. when somebody says, well, here's Zook, you just start translating. You're like, oh, it's a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. That, allows you to start to develop fluency with your new practice. You know, whether or not somebody would look at you and be like, yo, he's pure Zook, maybe not. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's what's really exciting for me. And I think it's probably why I'll never be a blues purist. You know, I never mm. was. I thought I was like a really hardcore blues dancer. And some instructors even like some, some uh, local organizers wanted to invite me and Ted to, um, a city, I won't say what city, to teach. Mm-hmm. And some of the local dancers were like, yeah, but they're not blues dancers because <laughs> we had done some fusion events and we, mm. were, we were like, oh, oh, oh. we were so offended <laughs> for about six months until mm-hmm. I realized, I was like, I'm not. I'm not a pure blues dancer. I never was. Mm. I always wanted to dance to the edgy late night stuff. I never want, like, mm-hmm. I never wanted to just do John Lee Hooker, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's okay with me. Like I'm, there are purists and preservationists out there and they do a very wonderful thing. They preserve a thing mm-hmm. to educate us. And then there have to be people that have to push edges. And, and that's, 
that's like where my heart lives is just finding, mm-hmm. finding the commonalities between practices. Um, mm-hmm. You know, finding the dance in a Turkish getup. And I am not joking. Mm-hmm. Like if you look up yeah. Turkish getup on YouTube, right? You're just laying on the floor with the kettlebell in the air, like in your hand. And you're just finding mm-hmm. a strategic way to get up off the floor. And of course it's like, it's very impressive the amount of weight that people manage to do this with. And mm. I gave this challenge to my clients the last couple of weeks. I was like, all right, we've been doing this really boring process. You're a dancer. Like, that's how I know you dance your Turkish getup. Mm. And they were like, what? And then mm. a week later they were like, Oh, it's really fun. <laughs> mm. Nice. Yeah. So um, I guess if you're listening to the podcast, I hope you're getting inspired because I'm feeling like a thread of self-awareness over time of figuring out like what inspires you, what motivates you, what fills your cup and where do you feel like you operate the best and not being ashamed or not letting the dogma of a particular dancing limit that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't even know what path that I'm on right now with this podcast and my pedagogy. And like I mentioned before, I want to compete and I find like that motivates me as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel new life when I hear other dancings, seeing these pedagogies and all that kind of stuff, you know, like, and then how can I apply to the kids? Because like I said, I don't want to uh, uproot myself from the kids world, but I am having to dabble into other dancings for um, dance inspiration by other people that are, that are a little bit more mature, you know, to kind of see like how that works, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's fascinating to kind of like chew on for a little bit. Um, and so what I'm pondering now is you said that you're not too vested into dance, but you have not, when you look at it in the context of movement, like you're still moving. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. like, when does, how do we, when does movement become dance and when does movement become fitness? And like, I feel like there's almost overlap because you said kind of your yeah. motivation to even start fitness was to perform better in dancing. So yes. your dancing has not been removed from your life, but I guess it's just there's certain aspects of dance that you have not partaken in, but dance is still a part of what you're doing and how you, it's still a part of your perspective of body movement. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really feel like in the way that I do a thing until I can't stand doing it anymore. Mm. I also sometimes have to put things down until I'm hungry for them again. Mm. Until, until I'm almost like envious. And mm-hmm. like I was up late one night a couple weeks ago just on YouTube. And I don't know how I went down like a West Coast swing rabbit hole. And I was like, oh my God. Like there are so many moves that I've wanted to crib from the West Coast swing scene for like myself mm. and particular partners. Like, oh, we could totally do that move. Mm. And like I know, I know that there's this there's this hunger starting to kind of like gnaw at like the back of my stomach right now. That's like, oh, you mm-hmm. know, you want to dance. Like, I actually have access to a dance floor if I wanted. You know, any day mm-hmm. of the week, any hour. Like, I need to spend time in that space, but I also need to be hungry for it. And I and I need to I need to be jealous. Like, that's really a mm-hmm. thing that motivates me is to see somebody else and be like, God damn it. I want to do mm. that and I can do it better. I know I can, mm-hmm. you know, and, it, and it's about exposing yourself to whatever media there is or whatever, you know, that kind of like inspires you or gets you excited. And, and also like the other thing for me is doing this thing that nobody else is doing. Like for me, that's really my happy place. If I can do a thing that nobody's done yet, 
or mm. that I haven't heard of, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, Is this dancing, uncharted territory? Right. Mm-hmm. Dancing the Turkish getup. When I mentioned this to my dance students who are training in fitness, they all looked at me like I was crazy. I was like, but we're all dancers. I'm come on now. Mm-hmm. And you saw exactly. the light go off in each person. I was like, dancer Turkish get up. They're like, oh, this is cool, you know? Um so you know, I feel like the future of fitness is going to involve some kind of heavy weighted object. And there's a lot of flow out there right now. There's a lot of like animal flow, steel mace flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are starting to shoot those videos with music in the background. It's like, mm-hmm. it's almost dance. It's dance like, mm-hmm. it's like an athletic pursuit that's dancey. But the, it's mm-hmm. like, I like to joke that it's dancing for bros, you know, because they, so like guys that would never hit the dance floor, but they're doing these incredible dance-like movements. And, you know, like, they're like, yeah, check out my video. I'm, da- I am playing dubstep and I've got my steel mace and I'm all jacked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, hearing you speak reminded me of that Albert Einstein quote. I just looked it up. Uh, mm. Dancers are the athletes of God. Oh, I haven't so heard that. Yeah. Um, by Albert Einstein. So there's definitely something to be said of that intersection that you said that they really fascinate you of athleticism yeah. and dancing. And yeah. so if you do find that jealousy, like I remember training with uh, Sarah, one of my apprentices here in Austin. And like, if we come up like with a cool way that like a hook step hasn't been done before, we're like, yes, we're the first ones to like create this one yeah. that you've seen. Yeah. Obviously you don't know what's happening in every dance scene across the world. Or sure. every dance floor, if you will. Yeah. Um, but like for us, it's new and we haven't seen it in our world from mm-hmm. our perspective. And so that's kind of like exciting, you know, and you want to continue that because it challenges your way to like find new ways to execute things that you have the there's nothing. There's no rule or dogma stopping you from. It just hasn't been explored long enough to find those those pathways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's the thing that motivates anybody in any profession or any art or any science you know, is like, is novelty. I mean, it's, it's mm. what motivates, it's what motivates people around a lot of things is, is novelty. And I think it's part mm-hmm. of why people have been struggling, you know, part of the struggle of the pandemic is like my four walls every day, you know? Mm. <laughs> it makes sense. Yep. So in this intersection of body movement, yeah. Mm-hmm. One foot in dance, one foot in fitness. What are some things that you've noticed about like your own training and working with other dancers in their fitness and Mm -hmm. things of that nature? What are like some of the fruits of your findings and things of that nature uh, in that regard? You know, I will say this being hired by dancers that I've known. It's like it's a great honor to me. I mean, I feel like I feel like I'm receiving a an Academy Award every time some dancer I've known randomly like reaches out to me and says like, Hey, are, are you doing training? Like I need to get in shape. And I'm like, Oh mm. my God. Like, first of all, thank you for seeing me. I don't advertise mm. on Facebook. Like I am a trainer. You should hire mm-hmm. me. Here's my ad. I just mm-hmm. post about fitnessy stuff sometimes. And I let people know like, yeah, I'm a trainer. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I'm, I'm super honored that they see me and they want, what they think I have. And the second thing is that training people who already have a movement background is always, always, always so much. It's so much easier than 
somebody who maybe it's their very first time doing a movement-based thing, like you just, the the rank newbies, whether it's dance or squats, uh, there's just some challenges that are like, wow, okay, if that person spent their whole life behind a computer, like, oh, it's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Knowing, knowing how to devise a practice program for a dancer is a little easier because I know, I know what they went through in their steps and learning how to dance. You know, I'm because I've entered that process and connecting what they do to their lives. Like, I know we're just picking up a kettlebell right now, but like, mm-hmm. I can connect this to your life more than just mm-hmm. like a, picking up a kettlebell for the sake of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, going back to what one of my teachers said, Brenda Russell, who, if you want a real dance geek in the world, uh, Brenda Russell is your lady. I'm in, I'm in communication with her. Okay, cool. We are going to be hopefully recording this month. Oh, wonderful. I, I, I interviewed Jessica Cutler, who informed me about Brenda Russell. And yeah, I reached cool. out to her. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of like um, share experiences with her and, and see where her brain is at and things of that nature. Because I'm, I'm all kind of, I'm exploring in pursuit of something. But um, yeah. I've heard her name come up quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, she's like, she, um, in, in, on one hand, she's my peer, um, but I have always experienced her as a mentor, like somebody who I mm. have looked towards and looked up to and um, had the opportunity to be a participant in a couple of her dance camps. And she said at the very first teacher training dance camp thing that I ever went to, which was the thing that launched me into being a teacher. She said, you know, guys, you need to, you need to be a little bit more fluid in your movement. Like you can't be so stiff. You can't be so blocky. And Brenda, man, she is known for just saying things that will rub people the wrong way. Cause she just says it. Mm. She's just like, whatever. And she was like, girls, you need to learn to be a little bit stronger. You know, like you need to have a core, you need a core stability. Like if you want to, mm. if you want to do aerials, you, you can't make the guy do all the work. You know, and she was mm. speaking in a very gendered way because that's how those those dances were performed at that time. That's mm-hmm. changed a lot in the fusion world for sure, and to mm-hmm. some degree in the blues world. But I really took what she said to heart, and I was like, "Yeah, I need to be stronger." And after that dance event, or that it was a very small camp that I was invited to. Uh, I met my friend Lucky at that. I worked with him at that camp and it was after that that he invited me on my first tour. I injured my back the week before I left for that European tour doing, mm. doing ab wheel rollouts stupidly. <laughs> so if anybody ever takes a class with me or, or I teach them ab wheel rollouts, like I'm for real about your technique. Cause I'm like, I hurt mm. myself so bad doing this wrong. Yeah. And I was on international dance tour. My first tour with back pain, like I'd never had before. Mm. <laughs> But, you know, I really took what Brenda said to heart, like, you need to have strength as a follow. You cannot, like, if you are in a female follow or any follow position, you need to have strength. It's not the lead's job to hold you up. It's your job. And leads, like leading isn't always about just being a base. It's not always about being blocky. It's You need mm-hmm. to have flow and fluidity. And Yeah. I can't speak highly enough for like Brenda's thinking on, on dancing nice. for sure. So I'm, I'm stoked That's you're awesome. going to be talking with her. That's so cool. 
Nice. So I kind of want to delve into uh, habit building and practice around mm-hmm. body movement because mm-hmm. you dance, you kind of flirt with the, both of those lines. Yeah. But like you won't see the results without that kind of habit and practice in place. Yeah. And I know we touched a little bit about organizing one's knowledge base. Yeah. Um, but if you're going to be the trainer or the trainee, like depending on your level of commitment, it is going to be important to organize your information so you know what habits you're building. You know, like I feel mm-hmm. like that has to go hand in hand. You can't really build a, a conscious habit without some form of building a knowledge base. And yeah. I've also been building like my second brain recently. Uh, but I learned that more from the entrepreneurial world. So I'm kind of see- curious to hear your journey through that. And uh, I guess I kind of share my experience as well. Yeah. I, um, I've i really been visualizing a like a mind map of mm. movements. You know, in the fitness world, like some pe- for some people... It's all about bench, dead, and squat. Bench, lift, uh, bench press, deadlift, and squat. That's it. Those are the three moves. Everything is about getting those down. And if you're, um, if you're a powerlifter competitor, like, yeah, that is your bread and butter. But out of, out of benching, you know, there's dumbbell pressing. There's incline pressing. There's alternating pressing. There's internal rotation. There's external rotation. There's push-ups. There's ball tosses like there are Mm. so many different ways to employ pressing in your movement right and so like i'm envisioning like when i'm teaching somebody movements i have kind of like a strata in my mind of like here's what they know right it's like when you play a video game and it's a video game with or you're on an adventure and there's a map right and it's blurry and then as you travel around the world the map Mm. starts to fill in Mm-hmm. Like in my mind, there's this huge map, right? Here's the island or here's the magical land of mm-hmm. fitness world. And like they yeah. all start out in this little place, you know, and it's like I'm, I'm slowly helping them light up that, that like light. And I'm, I actually want to build this like visually so that I can show it to people and be like, look, here's all the stuff you don't know, fuzzy. Here's the stuff you mm-hmm. do know. We're filling in your knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still that trying goes to- along with the uh, four stages of learning. What are the four stages of learning? <laughs> First stage will be uh, unconscious incompetence. Uh, you don't know what you don't know. You don't, and you yeah. don't know how to do it. Yeah. And then there's conscious, conscious incompetence. Competent, yes. So you know the things that you want to do, but you still you don't, don't know how do, to them, do them. And then you have to exactly. And then the third stage is conscious competence. So mm-hmm. you're consciously mm-hmm. doing the things and becoming more. A competent in those executions and the fourth level is unconscious competence mm. where you're operating and now it's not taking up so much uh, mental load and now you're able to just flow get state. into a flow state if you flow mm-hmm. state. yeah 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 um wait wait what, take me back to the original question which was about so we we're talking about learning, habit building habit and building. the mind map and you were mentioning like hey here are the things that you don't know I was like, ah, four mm. stages of learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're giving them a, uh, an opportunity to become consciously incompetent. Yeah, because yeah. They, don't, they just don't know what the four walls are. To they be don't know, they don't know. know. Yeah, yeah. Or like a lot of people have an idea of what is fitness, right? Like, because of course, there's a lot of imagery out there about what it means, mm-hmm. right? And 
that's kind of my challenge with people is like, I know you have this idea of what fitness looks like or like what it is you think I'm going to have you do. And I think within the first month, they're like, this is not, this is not what I said. Like, what? Why am I still on the mm. floor? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm like, because you're going to look, you're going to go through the processes that the baby went through. You're going to rebuild yeah. your foundation. <laughs> And and then we get to do that stuff you see on Instagram where you're jumping around, you're throwing a ball, and mm-hmm. you're like, woo. <laughs> Makes but sense. I, you know, I I took a dance class during like last spring, summer at the beginning of the pandemic. It was a solo jazz class. And I hadn't done that in so long, just a solo jazz class. And then I hadn't I had been working so hard on stability and strength and a lot of what you're doing when you're loading your body is you're not moving your spine. You know, you are mm-hmm. training yourself to have spinal neutral, to maintain it, to have core stability and to use your limbs for power. And I watched video of myself practicing this stuff and I was like, man, I am really good at stability and I've lost some of my fluidity. Mm-hmm. what am I going to do to get that back? And I think that's, I think that's part of the thing that I'm thinking about. And like, this is a thing like you, like before you do a thing, you have to spend time marinating in it. Like nobody buys mm. personal training or takes a dance lesson who hasn't sat and thought about it for a while. Like, man, I'd really like mm-hmm. to be fitter. Or I'd really like to know what to do at the party. Mm-hmm. And so I'm marinating in right now, like, I really would like to actually be a better solo dancer and to perform solo dance in a way that um, just moves people. You know, I don't need mm-hmm. to inspire you. I don't need to win a competition with it. I would just really like to redevelop that mastery over my own movement. And I think I'm going to come back to it with a greater degree of knowledge about like, what's my body doing, but also like, I'm going to have to undo some of the work I've done in strength training to, Mm. to reacquire the fluidity that is important for solo dancing. And, and I think the reason that I haven't really done it is because I know what, I know what it takes to practice it. Mm. And I think, man, that's a time commitment I'm not ready for right now. For sure. Makes sense. <laughs> I know too much. <laughs> mm. So how do you like, where do you have your knowledge base? Um, where do you have it like stored digitally? Mm. Um, do you have binders? Do you write it down? Do you type it out? Do you use voice diction? Um, I, in terms of like structured knowledge base, I invested in an Evernote membership years ago, and that has become mm-hmm. my brain. And Evernote's pretty good in terms of like just having your stuff in the cloud. Like if I ever lost my laptop, all those notes are not gone. They're in the cloud somewhere, exactly. which, is, which is like mm-hmm. good. Um, and if I ever need, if someone like is like, oh, I need some core exercises for this ab class. I'm like, yep, I have a document that's, that's, the four mm. planes of core training and every exercise I've ever come across that boom, it's all there, you know? So I keep, I keep a lot of different Evernote files and folders on just every workout I've ever done, every program I've ever written for myself, um, tons of just resources and articles and uh, nice. every little, every little blurb I've ever written about fitness that I've posted on like Instagram or Facebook. I wrote it in Evernote and edited it there so that I just have it. I case. started doing that for yeah. my little rants as well in yeah. motion. 
yeah you mm-hmm. never know you could be writing a book who knows no that's like, so <laughs> I, I, it's crazy because like i'm trying to be more intentional about how i consume and the information that i come across organizing and collecting it because like I'm starting this this year, but like, fuck, I've been doing this for years, you know, like imagine if I had done that from the beginning, you know, different videos, uh, different classes. And there's one thing of like passively reading a book and passively watching a video. And there's one thing to like nibble on it and like write down your thoughts of what you're realizing and things of that nature and keeping track of that so you can refer to it later. So I'm not I'm trying to be more active in my information consumption and keeping track of like different things. I want to be able to read a book and write down my thoughts from different chapters to where I don't have to pick up the book again. I can just go to that note and know like, hey, this might this book showed me this, 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 and this, you know? Or if I come across a podcast, I don't want to have to listen to the podcast again because unless I really want to. Right. But like if I wanted to like get the gist out of that podcast, there's a place where I can go and do that. I, well I really I really resonate with you on that. But in a way, I mean, it takes to do that. It takes a level of engagement mm. with the material and focus. Like you have to have your laptop and your book, right? Mm. And you have to be taking those notes or you have to be underlining or stickies or something. And it makes mm-hmm. it really hard to just like read, read your um, educational information in a leisurely way. Like it sometimes mm. it stops me. Like I won't watch the videos from one of the programs that I'm I paid for because well like I have to take notes when she talks because she says so much mm. you know and then I realized I was like well that's yeah. stupid because I'm going to go back and rewind that thing 30 times anyways I might as well play mm. the video once while I'm cooking listen to it mm. then go back and sit down with my laptop and take notes while she's talking and then and I know what's for coming sure. oh she's going to talk about that okay I'm going to get that down you know, and then play it again later while I'm on a bike ride and be like, yeah, okay, I'm reviewing, mm-hmm. I'm remembering, you know. The active recall. Yeah. What happens with me, I resonate with what you're saying, but what happens with me is that I come across something and I get an idea and like, ooh, this is a good idea and I don't capture it. And then I try to remember even later on in that day or the next day and it's gone. Yeah, you got like, to like, I just capture. need to like have that instant capture thing, you know. There's this one, so I've, I've been reading things on my Kindle recently. Mm -hmm. And so I have a service called Readwise where like it'll take all of my highlights that I make in the Kindle and extract it and put it and save it somewhere. So I don't have to like write it down or type it out or anything like that. And it's actually connected to my notion now. Oh, wow. And so now I just have to like read the book, but just make a quick highlight. And I know that I made that highlight that I'll be able to like pull that later. I don't have to go back and read read the chapter and try to find that highlight. Oh, so that's so been good. helpful of like not having to have another device. I can just be on yeah. that one device and yeah. just make a highlight. And I don't even have to worry about coming back to that highlight because I know it's going to be there again. Because this, yes. I think there's definitely friction in, okay, if I'm going to really assess this information, I need to have all my tools ready. And that's not always feasible if you're like doing other things, you know? Well. And also, I mean, it's really important, particularly if you're, if you are attempting to speak from a place of authority, you know, Mm. people post stuff in Facebook arguments all the time, you know, well, Mm. this is a thing. And then someone's like, what's your source? You know, what's Mm. your scientific study? And in Mm. the fitness world, if you make a claim that's hotly debated, people are going to be like, show me the study that says that, you know, Mm. let's see it. 
And for me, the great challenge is when I tell someone something, I want to be able to say, yeah, I'm telling you this about sleep. And I heard this from Matthew Walker. You know, mm-hmm. I'm telling you this about sunlight and neurology. And I heard this from Andrew Huberman. And like being able to actually develop that practice of like knowing where your sources are and not having to mm-hmm. go to the gadget or, you know, mm-hmm. the dictionary. Um, exactly. That's like, that's so powerful. And uh, in on that topic of like focusing your learning, I actually decided this week that I'm going to stop consuming free content for a while Mm. and just focus on the content that I've paid for. And that's awesome. Part of that is that when I was first learning how to do things, I didn't have a lot of like disposable income. And so it was just Mm. free dance videos, free articles, free blog posts, blah, blah, blah. And I was collecting all these links and that was kind of my, and maybe I would buy a book occasionally, but like at this point I have a library of like movement textbooks and I have Mm. subscribed and paid for, you know, workshops that, and videos and experts who are like, you're going to mm-hmm. pay for this. I'm going to give you the real knowledge. This isn't the, this isn't the teaser info. And yet I still have that habit of like scrolling Instagram or Facebook for that mm-hmm. nugget, that free nugget. But like, no, I paid for the nugget. That, exactly. is, that is what I'm going to do this year is I'm going to read all those damn books I bought and I'm going to watch mm-hmm. all the videos and I'm going to, Pay for the subscriptions I paid for, which is somebody actually went, they, they were given money. Exactly. And they went to the effort to put together the knowledge. So that is what I'm focusing on this year. Hmm. I feel like that's something I can apply to my, uh, my own information as well. And this is kind of like why I built the, the Dancers Trainers Journal. Mm-hmm. I, sh- I, I think, did I share with you? Oh, yeah. I think I, I signed up for it. Oh, wait. Mm, so, no, there's a Notion thing that I signed up for. Yeah. So the Notion and the Dancers Training Journal, the, the Dancers Training Journal lives in Notion. Yes, yes. But it's basically the, the template of being able to track these things in an organized way, you know? And it's always interesting to like see what the barriers are to your own learning and habit formation. And then the same thing for your students as well. Mm-hmm. And hearing you speak about like, hey, I'm going to invest in the things that I paid for. It makes me just remember all of the dance classes and festivals that I've taken and probably listeners that you've taken that you you paid all this money, went to a festival, bought your flight, hotel, pass, paid for who knows, hundreds and hundreds of dollars of private lessons. And then you have these video recaps that are essentially quote unquote collecting dust because you haven't reviewed them. Mm-hmm. Is it because of lack of organization? Is it because of digital space? Is it because of like, what's the friction that's not allowing you to like get your return on investment? Yeah. Depending on what your investment was. Uh, We talked about the 50 year old lady before. Was it just like, hey, I wanted to have fun that private? That's completely fine. You know, but if you are the dedicated dancer that wants to take their dancing to the next level, then you do need to be intentional about the information that you've already paid for and not always searching for the next cool move or the next festival or the next class. Like what have you synthesized from the classes that you've taken already? You know, because uh, this information overwhelm. It, this, okay. So this brings me to the topic of reward, right? Mm. And this is something I've been thinking about, which is that, that like that you going to the festival brings you like an instant reward feeling, right? 
Mm. or um, scrolling Instagram and finding that cool video that you're like, oh, sweet. Mm. Like if I find a video that's cool enough, I'll bookmark it. Right. But how often do I Mm. go back to the bookmarks and then like, Mm -hmm. I should be categorizing. I should be like, is this a move I want to put into my my library and my collection? Am I going to go practice this move? And when it comes to coaching people in a practice and they're like, there's always a conversation I have, you know, in the first month with somebody where they're like, oh man, I'm just, I'm really struggling because like, I know that you gave me the template of like what I'm supposed to do and I know I'm supposed to do it, but I'm just like, I'm not motivated. And like, I'm trying to find motivation and blah, blah, blah. And I only have one client right now who he's like, I know I can't rely on motivation. I know it doesn't exist. So I just Mm. like, I just, I I schedule it. I grind it into my day and I just show up and I do it. You know, Mm. like he gets it. He understands that you cannot wait for motivation, but the thing that I've been thinking about is like, well, we, we either like go away from pain, right. And we only go away from pain when we've been burnt. And then we're like, well, I felt really bad the last time I ate that, uh, that like tub of ice cream. So Mm. I won't eat a tub of ice cream this week, even though I'm thinking about it. Right. Or I felt really bad when I was in my bikini at the beach last Mm. year. So I'm going to try to, you know, lose some weight this year, whatever, whatever pain mm-hmm. motivates people. Or there's like the instant, like, oh, I want to watch this show right now. I want to take a nap or I want to play this little video mm-hmm. game that gives me kind instant of like a, a hit. Yeah. Versus like the deep reward. And I feel like, I feel like when people connect with their deep reward, like they get, they get shit done. And mm-hmm. if you can, if you can separate and understand the feeling of like, like, okay, I repainted my entire apartment this last fall and I thought I was going to get it done in like a couple weeks and it took me three months. Mm. And for three months, I literally got up every day, started patching, started painting, sanding, whatever it took and would do it for like anywhere from like eight to 12 hours a day. And then I would stop for like a client and do like for an hour, like, okay, okay, here we go. Here's your workout. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Got to go. Bye. All right. Back to mm-hmm. whatever, because I needed, I needed it to be done so I could move back into my apartment. Cause all my stuff was mm-hmm. like in the garage. Yeah. But I was so freaking productive during that time. And I worked so hard and I worked hours that I would never work in my normal life mm. because at the end of the day, it was so rewarding. Even if it was just one wall that I'd finished, you know, I would like, I still sit there and look around my apartment now and I'm like, yeah, this place is great. Like these mm-hmm. walls are exactly the color I wanted and I patched them and the these decorations look so good. And like the deep reward I feel from having put all that effort in is really like, it's the, it's the thing that's teaching me to be a completionist because I'm sure there are a lot of people who listeners here who are like, start things and don't finish them, you know? Mm. And if you can take yourself through a process of like completing a thing, completing a chapter, taking a whole course, you know, going through a program with somebody and then getting to the end and being like, I did this thing and now I have this product that I made, or I have this skill that I can perform. Like once you can experience the reward of going deep into something, you can connect it to, the next hard thing that you don't want to do, you know? Exactly. But I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to take somebody there without already taking them there. 
<laughs> mm, it makes you know? sense. Yeah. There's a book called uh, Motivation is a Myth and how we mm. need to like, in, all, in those uh, instances, we need to rely on discipline yeah. uh, of a system in place. And sometimes motion, uh, getting in motion is what creates the motivation to continue. You know, yeah. like how I'm pretty, all of us, like, I know, like, sometimes you dredge uh going to the gym you know but once you're there and you get warmed up you're like man this feels nice you know so totally. it's like the the mental block of getting past that uh oh i need to feel motivation before i want to work out you know mm-hmm. versus having a system in place to make it easier have your shoes ready have your workout clothes ready um things that that to help just make it quick to where you can't psych yourself out of it you know so um, I'm doing, we're conducting this interview in my boyfriend's mm. workout room and mm. he like, there's the weights, nice. there's the mat, there's the mm-hmm. bench, you know, he has no excuse. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I just really admire him as a person is he works out every day. He takes one day off every day he's in here. He has no excuse. <laughs> even though we met at the gym you know he would mm-hmm. go to the gym for equipment he doesn't have here but after we met i was like i was like you have a whole workout room and i met you at the mm-hmm. gym dude mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i was like no wonder you're so strong oh i get it like you don't yeah you know and he was honest with me when we met he was like yeah you know, I don't go into an office every day, but I come into this gym every day. Like I come in and work mm. out and you can't like, I'm sorry, but you can't have that time. You know, you can't like, you can stay over, you can sleep over, you can hang mm-hmm. around in my house, but I'm going to be in that room working mm. out. And I'm like, <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's badass. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's somebody who systematized, you know, and we, we chat every day, even if I'm not around. I'm like, how's your workout today? He's like, I'm dragging, you know, but I know he's in here doing mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's, you no, know, that's, that's awesome. That's the other thing is that people experience like a momentary high, maybe from a dance weekend or like a good workout. And then they go again and it's not as fun. And they're like, well, this mm-hmm. isn't fun now. Mm-hmm. Too bad, sucker. It's not always fun. (laughs) Yeah, you have to go with the highs and the lows. And like, you don't let the super highs get you super elated and you don't let the lows get you either. And like, it levels out over time, you know? Oh, you know what? Can I? Okay, I want to share with you one of my greatest secrets and with the Mm -hmm. listeners. Um, This was a class that Andrew Smith and I taught a couple times. And it was a, it was like a meditation and dance class. I, I forgot what we called it, but it was this idea that I had. I was like, I really am, I really am into the idea of um, working through the boredom. And mm. I, had, I had gotten to this through learning how to play drums. Because when you learn how to play drums and you can't get the beat, you don't, you don't play a whole riff. You don't even play a whole four beat measure. You just play mm. two beats over mm-hmm. and over again until you can do it on time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as I got through that, I was like, oh, wow, if I did this with my dancing, I'd be such a better dancer. Like mm-hmm. I would really master my steps. I wouldn't be approximating my steps. I would really actually dance on beat, you know? And exactly. so we set up like a 12 minute track. And this is like, I remember teaching this class and just being like so terrified. And we were like, all right, guys, 
we want you to pick a pattern that's repeatable, that no more than four beats, and try to make it be balanced on both sides of the body, you know, just so you don't get like one knee gets super funky mm-hmm. or something. And you're going to do this pattern for the next 12 minutes. And you're not going to change it. This isn't about variation. It's not about invention. It's about just doing it for 12 minutes. And they were like, okay. And then we just sat and watched them do it. And I was so uncomfortable because people dropped their performance faces and they went Mm. internal and they just, their faces were like flat. And I was like, oh God, they hate this. Oh God. Oh no. Mm -hmm. And I was just terrified inside. Like they hate this class. They're never, oh, they're never going to come to one of my classes again. And then we stopped and we were like, okay. We just want to invite you to share what that experience was like, Um, whether it was positive or negative. We're not looking for validation here. We want to like really know what what that was like. And everybody was like, oh my God, I've never paid that much attention to my movement. I've never felt Mm. so connected to a step. And there was no negative feedback. Like people expressed maybe that they felt uncertainty or like they went through a process, but there was nobody saying, I, I really didn't like this exercise. And we really pushed. Mm. We were like, we really do not want positive feedback right now. We just want to know what, what that was like. And then mm. we did it again. And we did it again. <laughs> and I think that if I go back to my dance practice, I'm going to have to do some of that. Mm. To, just be cool, to just be cool with like, this dance practice is not about excitement. It's not about creativity. It's not about novelty. It's about just, doing the steps and working through the boredom Mm, and being totally okay with that. Mm. And the thing is, going back to the four stages of learning, I feel like when you put work in your foundation like that, you're more likely to come across these cool surprises along the way because now your body can operate in an unconscious flow state where you're not doing heavy lifting mentally. And now you surprise yourself with uh, certain aspects because you have that base that you built and yeah, it's really awesome to like surprise yourself with some musicality trick or something like that. But because you did the work on the bass, then it enabled that for that to happen, you know? Yes. Yes. When, um, when John Hoven and I were competing in the blues world, we uh, rented studio space two hours a week. And we, it was kind of an, it was like a, an open practica for for our friends and associates and and sometimes people would show up and sometimes it was just him and I. Mm. And I would just ask at the beginning of the practice, I'd be like, cool, just tell like, just talk about what it is you want to work on, whether you're working for your, on your something for yourself or whether you want to work with somebody and let's just kind of talk about where we're, what we're focusing on. And every single practice, I would say, John, what do you want to work on? And he would say, I just want to work on musicality every freaking mm. time. And we did that for like a year and then we just crushed some competitions. And mm. I just remember we turned to each other after like winning a competition and we were like, practice, it works, bitches. Yeah! <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and and he is he is one of the most musical dancers I've I know. You know? Mm. He's just there inside that pocket. That's awesome. So Ruby. We are at, so getting close to the two hour mark. So we've been going for a minute. um, Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Like I said, I know that we're going to have multiple episodes in our belts. And so it's been awesome to kind of like pick your brain and things of that nature uh, as it 
relates to dance and just movement in general and collecting ideas. I think all of these things are overlap just with like, you know, pursuits of happiness in life, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and moving towards goals that uh, inspire you, things of that nature, you know. So do you have a inspirational quote or saying or something like that to to bring us home with the podcast? Mm. You know, I was watching Ugly Delicious last night, which... What is that? It's a cooking show or it's a food show. Mm. Uh, it's on Netflix. The host is the chef at Momofuku in LA. His name is David Chang. And I can't recommend it enough. You know, food food is at its heart. It's really about culture and community. And he really connects food to culture and community and politics in a way that I've never mm. seen a, a food show do. And it's, it's pretty badass. And, you know, I think David Chang is also a fusion artist at heart. You know, he asks, we're watching the barbecue episode last night. And he was like, well, Korean barbecue, like, can't I take Korean barbecue and do it American style? Why, how come no one does that? What's wrong with that? You know? Hmm. And he, he says towards the end of the episode, he said, well, you know, when you, when you take from other cultures, you borrow from another practice, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, you can't just, you can't just take the practice. You have to ask yourself, how would I do it if that was the way that I I had learned to do it. You know, how would I mm. make that work? I'm paraphrasing this badly. For sure. And he said, sometimes you get something really cool out of that when you when you really get inside, like how you would do that practice. And he said, sometimes it's sometimes what you make is terrible. It's awful and nobody should eat it. But sometimes you you get some really incredible stuff. And mm. I I just think about that with every practice that I dive into, you know, I don't just try to recreate what someone else is doing, but like, how do I make that thing happen in my body? How do I make it work Mm. in my psyche and in my day? And um, to me, that's the heart of like, not just learning, but also like um, how we learn from other cultures and other practices. That's dope. So that's That's awesome. That's what I've been feeling inspired by is uh, ugly, delicious, great show. Mm. Nice. (laughs) It's awesome when you get going with these ideas and inspiration and your practice and thinking about things and obsessing over them is that you do find inspiration from lots of different things outside of that core passion it is that you're passionate about, you know, like, uh, can I get inspired by a violinist for my kids? Can I get inspired by a uh, mountain climber or something like that, you know, and how can I take that um, and find use of that in my in my world you know so yeah that's pretty cool yeah yeah well um i I just want to thank you for all the questions you asked me today you actually got me to think about and talk about some stuff i hadn't been thinking about at all and that's fantastic Mm -hmm. like it's gonna inspire me uh in this coming week and month yeah that's awesome i love intellectual conversation that's one of my love languages and so i'm trying to this is part of the reason of me doing the podcast to like if nobody listened to it i would still want to have these conversations so yeah uh, hopefully you guys out there (laughs) enjoy it um i did start an intellectual dancer newsletter so if you're interested in that and you're still listening to the podcast uh i'll leave a link in the show notes for the podcast you guys can jump in on that and i send out emails of different things that i have found uh that may uh add some value to your life uh, dance and and movement so (laughs) 
Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you guys next week. Thank you for checking out the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast today. Be sure to check out neokizomba.com for links to everything that we chatted about today, as well as some awesome free resources to enhance your Kizomba journey. Cause the truth.